Exodus chapter number 20. Would you be concerned if I told you that people in our church had joined a cult? There's been people that thought our church was a cult. In an article for Christianity Today, one pastor confessed this. I belong to the cult of the next thing. It's dangerously easy to get enlisted. It happens by default. Not by choosing the cult, but by failing to resist it. The cult of the next thing is consumerism cast in religious terms. It has its own litany of sacred words. More. You deserve it. New. Faster. Cleaner. Brighter. It has its own deep-rooted liturgy. Charge it. Instant credit. No down payment. Deferred payment. No interest for three months. Sorry, Farron. It has, of course, its own shrines, chapels, temples, meccas, in the form of malls, superstores, club warehouses. It has its own sacraments, credit and debit cards. It has its own ecstatic experience, the spending spree. The cult of the next thing central message proclaims, crave and spend for the kingdom of stuff is here. That article was written in 1999, if you can believe it. It's even worse today. My question is, why does the cult of the next thing tempt us so much? I say us, I'm talking from the pulpit all the way to the back. Here's why. Because in our sinful hearts, covetousness is more natural to us than its opposite, which is contentment. We have to fight covetousness. We don't have to, I'm sorry, we have to fight discontentment. We don't have to really fight covetousness. It just comes to us. It's natural. Contentment, we got to fight to get it. We got to fight to be content with what we've got. Covetousness, it just, we wake up and we covet. We go to bed, we covet. We go to work, we covet. It just happens to us. I think that's why God gave the 10th commandment like he did in Exodus 20 verse 17. It says this, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife, nor his manservant, nor his maidservant, nor his ox, nor his ass, nor anything that is thy neighbor's. Now, I know you've heard that verse before. You've seen it before. We just read it. But I want to slow down and break it down phrase by phrase and kind of apply it just real quick so you know that you live right there in that verse. And I do too. The first line is, thou shalt not covet your neighbor's house. We would say it or think that kind of thing like this. Well, they sure have a lot of nice stuff. I'm so tired of living in this neighborhood. We live in a dump. Man, it must be nice to live somewhere so fancy and so well decorated. Why can't we have the HDTV house? The next line is, thou shalt not covet your neighbor's wife. One man thinks, wow, she's beautiful. Look at the respect she gives her husband. I wish I had married someone like her. A wife says, look at her husband. He's so friendly, so good with the kids, helps out around the house, pays attention to his family, always present. Why am I stuck with this guy? Next line says, or his male servant, female servant, his ox. I prefer to say his donkey. We'd say, man, my car's a piece of junk. It's not fair. All our friends take great vacations. 
They go to the Grand Canyon. They go to Disney World. We're lucky if we can go to Grandma's house in Amarillo. Why am I stuck in this loser job? I wish my kids were more like their kids. The next line is just really general. Or anything that is thy neighbor's. Man, I wish I could be smart like him. My life would be so much better if I look like her. Why can't I have a normal family? Why is everything in my life so hard when everything for everyone else seems so easy? Man, they have a lot of time on their hands. I wish I could afford that. Now, there's nothing necessarily wrong with noticing the other, like what other people have. Here's the problem. Most of us don't stop and notice so that we can give thanks to God for his blessings to others. We notice and then we stop being thankful for all that God has given to us. This is our natural posture. Coveting. In order to help us understand this command better, we're going to divide the sermon into two main headings. We'll talk about the sinfulness of covetousness, and then we'll talk about how we overcome covetousness through contentment in Christ. I hope you got the right handout. Pastor David is supposed to preach this tonight, and I went and rewrote it uh, for, for me to preach it, because he's got the flu. So pray for the Harris family. They're all down tonight. I don't know if, did you get the right handout? Is, 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 put up number one up there. He's uh, ever back there. Dustin, is this the right handout? Okay, good. Covetousness, a sinful desire. That's, that's part number one of the sermon tonight. The word for covet in Exodus 20 verse 17, you study it in the Hebrew, it simply means desire. That's what you really boil it down to. It means desire. And God makes it clear here what kind of desire he's talking about because he says, don't covet your neighbor's house or your neighbor's wife, etc. In other words, he's talking about covetousness as being these excessive desires, These illegitimate desires, the kind of desires or cravings that push up against God's providence for us. In the King James translation, the Hebrew word for covet is translated seven different ways in various scripture passages, not all negative actually. The one here is covet, another English word is translated into as desire, another is delight, another is pleasant, one is beauty, one is lust, one is delectable. Now, we know that not all desires are wrong because God created us to be creatures of desire. Like our desire for food reminds us that we need to eat. How many wish you had less desire for food? I was over there at the the FBA elementary games today and Damien was cooking burgers for the booster club selling those in the concession stand. I just couldn't get my hands off those things. And then I went home and ate homemade chicken noodles tonight. And a chocolate chip cookie. And I literally told my wife out loud, why am I so hungry all the time? I write sermons for a living. I shouldn't be this hungry. I just can't shake it. I'm just hungry all the time. Our desire to be useful motivates us to work, right? Uh, The deepest desire we have is to know God. So desires are good. But like everything else about us since the fall, our desires are corrupted by sin. And it shows up in that we want the wrong things. And we want them in the wrong way or at the wrong time or at least for the wrong motive or reason. Let let me point out a few things about these kind of sinful desires that God calls covetousness. Okay, first of all, covetousness is the oldest sin in the Bible. 
Genesis chapter 2 verse 9. I want you to look at this verse. And out of the ground made the Lord God to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life also in the midst of the garden. The tree of knowledge of good and evil. The verse states that the Lord God made every tree to grow, quote, that is pleasant to the sight. That, that's a direct translation of the same Hebrew word for covet, covet in Exodus 20. So God created these things to be desirable. It's a good thing. Fast forward one chapter, and now those desires turn bad. Genesis 3 verse 6, and when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was, here it is, pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired, same Hebrew word, to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat and gave also unto her husband with her and he did eat. So the verse references back to the same word. It says that the woman saw that the tree was good for food. She saw it was pleasant to her eyes. It was a tree to be desired because it made you wise. And, and notice that then she took the fruit and then she ate the fruit. Then she gave her husband the fruit to eat as well. So the verse jam packs multiple sins into one list but consider where the chain of events of eve taking eating giving and adam eating actually start it started with covetousness she saw that one tree as a tree to be desired so as i look at those two verses what makes the desire in genesis 3 verse 6 wrong and the desirability of genesis 2 verse 9 right Well, here's what made the tree that seemingly wasn't desirable in Genesis 2 to be desirable in Genesis 3. It was the words of the serpent. Remember? He interjected the seed of thought into Eve's mind that perhaps God was holding something good, withholding something good from Eve. Now, we all know because we can zoom out and see the Bible at 38,000 feet. Eve couldn't. God was not holding back something good. He was holding something bad from her but yet with the thought of god being restrictive and by the way satan plays on that like crazy god being restrictive god not being good god not paying attention to you with that thought placed in her mind she let that thought grow she let her eyes covet and she sets forward a path of sin that we struggle with to this day and that is why God is attempting to reverse this desire in us through the Ten Commandments. So so the sin of covetousness goes all the way back to the beginning. We've struggled with it ever since. Consider a second thing. Covetousness is the first step to every other sin. This is so important. Covetousness is the first step to every other sin. That's why it's so dangerous. It's why we can't treat this as something small. And it's why we cannot make ourselves um, immune or think that we're immune to this type of sin. It's huge in all of our lives, more than we think. One author said this, as a ferryman takes in so many passengers to increase his fare that he sinks his boat. So a covetous man takes in so much gold to increase his estate that he drowns himself in perdition, perdition, ruin. Coveting can sink us down to hell as fast as any other sin He doesn't pull any punches. Look at these scriptural examples of of coveting being being the first of many sins. Joshua 7 verse 21. My dad preaches amazing. One of my favorite messages he preaches on the sin of Achan. 
When I saw among the spoils a goodly Babylonish garment and 200 shekels of silver and a wedge of gold of 50 shekels weight, then I coveted them and took them. And behold, they are hid in the earth in the midst of my tent and the silver under it. We know the result of that sin of Achan. He coveted. And then what did he do? He stole. Then what did he do? He hid. He lied. And then what, what happened? People died. Including him, but other people died and it all started with covetousness. James 1 verse 14 and 15. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust. The Greek word for, 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 for the Hebrew word that we're struggling. Sinful desire. And then he's enticed. Then when that sinful desire hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. You see the chain effect? James 4.1. From whence come wars and fightings among you? Come they not hence even of your lust, desires that war in your members? Where does all this relational conflict in our lives come from? It comes from us wanting something so bad that we will hurt somebody to get it. It comes when we don't get what we want and so we will slander the person who got what we wanted. Wars and fightings among you. What is the root of all of that? Covetousness. 1 Timothy 6.10 For the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith. Please don't miss this. It's too important to space out. And pierce themselves through with many sorrows. Do you see the weight of this verse? Some have pierced themselves with sorrows. What does that mean? It's like they've taken this metaphorical knife and just stabbed the life out of themselves because they keep chasing after riches. It's like they're bleeding out trying to be successful. Coveting something they don't have. They need more and it gets even more serious. They have erred from the faith. They have compromised what they believe to make another dollar. Oh, I weary of seeing this. I weary of seeing two and three and four jobs so that people can go on another trip. Not so that people can have food on the table. Not so their kids can have shoes. But so that they can have a third car. Or a new gun. Or an extra this. And there's no way you work extra jobs without missing church. And and hear me, let's just hear me. You will stand before God one day. And you will never hear from him. Well done thou good and faithful servant. You missed more church. Because of more work. You will never hear that from God. Do not justify. Do not justify yourself in missing church for work because you have to. I'm convinced that a lot of times Christians don't have to miss as much church as they do. They don't. That doesn't mean those others, those on shift work. I have a, I have common sense. I know what, I know there, there are some things you cannot avoid. I'm talking about stacking. Job upon job upon job. Saying yes to things you just say no to. Why? Because of covetousness. Let's just get down to the brass tacks. 
You want more. You are not content. You, you take a second or third job to get through a difficult season in your life, and then you like the money you get from that second or third job. You've got all that debt paid off, but you still can't say no to that second or third job because you're experiencing a lifestyle that you really wanted to experience for a long time. All the bills are paid, you're caught up, things are going good, you've adjusted your stewarding so you don't get in this mess again, but you can't say no to that because you have an extra $15,000 a year. I'm telling you, it's dangerous. I'm passionate about this. I'm passionate about it. Too many, too many Christians are in financial hardship and spiritual hardship because they want more. We got to stop wanting more. Why? You err from the faith. It's a crazy amount of compromise that goes on in churches among believers. And it's all justified. We find a way to win that argument in our mind every time. Got to be careful. So this is the springboard into other sins. Notice the third thing about covetousness. It's inescapable because it's rooted in our hearts. It's inescapable. Just because I'm the one that, that put this manuscript together and, and I'm preaching this doesn't mean that I can escape this great temptation. I am wrestling with this personally every day of my life. This word more, especially for, for, for my personality, it's always what is the next thing for me? I struggle with that personally. It's always, can I get a little more? Can I do a little more? Can I accomplish a little more? Can we grow a little more? Can we make a little more? It's more, 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 more. And that, that, that is just an insatiable, sinful desire in my fleshly heart. Leland Riken says this, there is something unusual about the 10th commandment that distinguishes it from the rest of the Decalogue. It goes straight to the heart. Martin Luther said, this last commandment then is addressed not to those whom the world considers wicked rogues, but precisely to the most upright, to people who come to church on Wednesday nights, who wish to be commended as honest and virtuous because they have not offended against the preceding commandments. Most Christians think of coveting as relatively a a minor sin because it doesn't seem as weighty as the other commands of the law when you compare it to giving false witness or worshiping other gods or adultery or murder. And here's why we, we think and we minimize covetousness because it's so internal. It's such a silent disobedience. Think about it. You, you've heard of Christians being even excommunicated from churches for, for, for a murder or, or, or an adulterous affair they refuse to repent of. But it would be impossible to discipline someone on the grounds of coveting alone. No one but God knows if this is going on in your life. At least for a very long time. Because it's so deep. It's so hardwired in our hearts. It's internal. And that's what makes the 10th commandment different from the others. It starts on the inside. So we have to conclude that the commandment about coveting is not concerned as much with what we do, but with what we want to do. Do you hear me? 
A lot of the other commandments are so tangible and so concerned about the actual physical action of that sin or that violation. Right? Don't murder. And don't steal. And, and, and don't lie. And, and, and these are all things that we see people do. We, we hear people do. But, but this sin of covetousness, it begins with something we want. See, I can stand up here and preach a sermon to you. And at the same exact time, want something sinful and you will never know. You can come with your wife or your husband, sing a worship song next to them. And want something other than them. And they never know. They never know. Do you understand how this thing is so hidden? It's so internal. It's so swept under the rug because we can fake our way through this one. All of us can. It's so hidden. I find it interesting what the apostle said in Romans 7 verse 7. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. He could have mentioned all, he could have mentioned any of the other nine commandments there to reveal to him how much of a sinner he was. But he recognized, the great apostle Paul recognized that apart from this 10th commandment, it may not have been clear to him how much of a sinner he was. The same should be true for every one of us. If we're honest, we have to look at this 10th commandment tonight and we have to plead guilty. You can look at, you can look at the, the command, thou shalt not murder, and you might not think guilty right off the page. Should not commit adultery. You might not think guilty right off the page. Should not make you graven images. You, you might not think guilty right off the page. But wanting something that God in his sovereignty has chosen to not give you and letting that want become a sinful desire, an excessive desire, who in here gets to plead innocent to that? I think all of us have something we wrestle with in regards to to these times when these strained desires become so large in our hearts. I have to conclude that if covetousness is primarily a sin of the heart, we have to deal with it or at least start dealing with it on a heart level. From the inside out, that's where we come to the last part and the shorter part of the sermon. And it's this, Christ, a satisfying Savior. This is the cure. Covetousness is a sinful desire. The flip side of this command is Christ, a satisfying Savior. Savior. How many of you know Christ is a satisfying Savior tonight? Hebrews 13, verse 5. This is so key. Let your conversation, that, that's, that, that word means lifestyle, the way in which you live, be without covetousness. And be content with such things as ye have. How? 
For he hath said, I will never leave thee, nor forsake thee. The cure for covetousness is contentment in Christ. And notice what Hebrews said. We can be content with such things as we have, even if what we have isn't everything we want or even feel like we need. Why? Because we, as children of God, have the promise of God's presence in our life. And if you have the promise of God's presence in your life, apparently according to the Bible, that is enough to live on. That's enough to still be happy when you don't have everything you want. It's enough to be at peace when your job really stinks. It's enough to have a sense of settledness because of the presence of Christ in you. That's enough to be settled even when other relationships are really wavering. This could be that why when, when God called Moses to go lead his Hebrew children out of Egyptian bondage. And Moses kept making excuses for why he couldn't do it. God didn't bribe Moses with physical possessions. He didn't say, rest assured, Moses, if you do this for me, I'm going to give you the house of your dreams. I'm going to give you the chariot you could never afford. I'm going to give you the most land of any man in the Middle East. No, because God knows that none of those things really truly bring peace and contentment. When Moses was afraid to obey God, God wanted to give him settledness with one promise. It was this, I will be with you. The promise of God's presence in his life would bring him to a point of settledness. When Moses died, who took his place? Joshua. When God gave Joshua the the charge to lead his people to the promised land, what did he tell Joshua? Be strong and of good courage. Why? For the Lord thy God is with thee. David wrote about the ability to walk through the valley of the shadow of death without fear. How? Because God was with him. He said, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. I've got the Lord's presence. I have everything I need. Oh, to get to that point in life. The prophet Isaiah said, fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. My point is that the only way that we as followers of God can fight the sin of covetousness in our lives, the only way we can be truly content with what we have is when we realize that God's presence is all we need to be satisfied. It's what the Apostle Paul figured out, isn't it? Philippians 4 verse 11. Not that I speak in respect of one, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be, next word, How? How could he learn that? The guy was in jail. He was shipwrecked. He was beaten. He was stoned. He was stripped naked and humiliated. He was placed in the stocks. He was given a thorn in the flesh that God would not take away, even though he pleaded with God to take away. How did he learn contentment? How did he graduate from the school of contentment? How did he do it? He said, I can do all things through Christ, which strengtheneth me. I'm sorry to shatter 
the way you use this verse, but it's really not meant to pump up your team to win the state championship. Doesn't have anything to do with that. I suppose they can use Philippians 4.13 out of context and God can still use it. It's better than not using a scripture at all, I suppose, maybe. But this is really talking about Paul giving an explanation. Here's how you can learn to be content with Jesus even when life isn't going well. He strengthens you to do it. It makes no earthly sense how my mom and dad can lose their son, bury their son, be reminded of that on the daily, yet have an entire ministry now strengthening other people who lose their loved ones. A lot of Christians quit when that stuff happens. A lot of Christians get angry at God when that stuff happens. How would they learn to be content one child short? How? Through Christ. Through Christ. It's not that my dad gets up on December 3rd, my brother's birthday, and thinks to himself, I just got to pull myself up by the bootstraps today. I just got to man up. I live in a fallen world and this is part of life. It's not that he doesn't cry anymore. It's not that my mom doesn't cry anymore. It's not that they're not frustrated about it anymore. It's not that they don't get just, just almost, almost shocked by, by times in which it just hits them unexpectedly that TJ is not here. They're still very human. It's not just their willpower. It's not by osmosis. It's by the fact that they have learned That in Christ, they have all things. In Christ, they can be content. Whether they have three living children or two and one in heaven. And it's in Christ that you can still be at peace when you lose something. Or when you lose someone. When your circumstances are just crazy. When you're sick, when you're broke. When you're angry, when you're confused. When you're divorced. When you're separated. When you're fighting. When you're laid off. When you lose. I can do all things Through Christ, which strengthens me. Well, what does that look like practically? Like, how does that happen? How do we fight the sin of covetousness? If you say it, like, that's a cute verse, but what does it look like for me to become content through Christ when he strengthens me? I've explained this many times in counseling before. I've used it in a message here before, so maybe you'll remember, I don't know. But I always ask people to imagine that on the other side of of that wall is a faucet. And out of that faucet is, of course, drinking water or draining water, giving water. And, And I want you to imagine you have an empty bottle or an empty glass. And the emptiness represents what you don't have. 
The emptiness represents what you lost. The emptiness represents how you hurt. And imagine somebody tells you, go to the water. That's that's where you get your strength. The water is going to represent God's strength, his grace in time of need. And so, so you go over to the faucet, take the cap off the water bottle. And you turn it on and it doesn't just rush out. It just kind of trickles out and it goes to the very top and then it stops. And you, God fills whatever you, your emptiness, he fills with his grace, his strength. So whatever you brought to him in this bottle, he had enough to give you strength to get through it and still have joy. Life happens. Maybe it doesn't completely go away. This time you're going to bring back a bucket to him, a nice size bucket, a five gallon bucket. You can make this represent whatever it is in your mind. It's just a little bigger deal than that. But you go back to the hose and, and, and you put the bucket under the, the, the faucet. You're hoping the plumbing still works. It's been a while since you've been here. But you turn on the faucet again and here it comes and it fills up that bucket at the top and it stops. Now you have just enough to get through whatever God has ordained that you have to go through. Life happens, but because you live in a fallen world, tragedy strikes again, disappointment comes again, betrayal comes again, frustration comes again, layoff comes again, bills come again. Health scare comes again. Aging parents. Stress. So now you're taking a wheelbarrow to the the faucet. This is big. It's bigger than you've ever faced. You're hoping the plumbing works. You're really hoping it has enough water. You turn it on and you get that familiar swoosh back and forth in a wheelbarrow when you fill it up. The swoosh slows down as it gets closer to the top and it stops. And once again, you have everything you need when you need it from God. Life happens. Now it gets really bad. It's cancer. It's the loss of a child. It's a miscarriage. It's a rebellious kid that grew up in church, but now wants nothing to do with God. It's a kid that still is in your home and they've got like two or three more years in your home and you have no answers for their attitude. And it's about putting you in the grave. <laughs> you are so stressed out. It's bankruptcy. It's the failure of a business. It's a broken marriage. And you're not taking a, a bottle and you're not taking a bucket and you're not taking a wheelbarrow. You are backing up a semi-trailer. This is huge. You're confident that God will not have what you need in this moment. This is why, by the way, most people in big hurts, they just quit on God altogether. Because they have this false presupposition that God doesn't have enough. But God promised Paul, my grace is sufficient for thee. In other words, I have as much grace to give you as hurt you bring me. So however big the hurt Bring it on, God says. That's how much grace I have to give you. And you back it up. Beep, beep, beep. Turn on the faucet. And it takes forever. But it fills up until that tanker can't hold any more water. What does that mean? What does that look like in the Christian life? Here's what it looks like. You must get to the hose. You must get to the faucet. 
When you can't find contentment because your circumstances are caving in on you. You don't run away from the places where you can get God's grace. You don't run away from the places where you can find God's strength over time. You get to the place where God's strength is easily accessed. The people of God, the worship of God, the fellowship with God's people, the the word of God, private worship in your prayer closet. These kind of places where, where, where God just has these hoses popping out. Places where you can go and you can feel God's presence in your life. Places you can go and you can be reassured of God's promises to you. Alcohol will never reassure you that God is good. Get away from that faucet. Marijuana will never tell you God is good. Get away from that faucet. Sex will never tell you God is faithful. Get away from that faucet. Pornography will never give you a state of contentment in your circumstance. It is too fleeting. It's fake. It's superficial pleasure. And if you've ever looked at pornography and hooked on pornography, you know how cheap it is. It fixes you in the moment. That's it. Like every other false faucet. Fixes you in the moment. You need to get to the faucets where the real strength of God comes out. When you feel like coming to church, the the least is when you probably need it the most. Don't run out to a field and start hunting and that's going to make you feel better. Don't go slide a debit card or a credit card and that'll make you feel better. None of those things are inherently sinful that I just mentioned, but those are false faucets. Hobbies, recreation, traveling, I just got to get away for a little bit. Hold on a second. Hold on a second. You can't run from reality. You can't run from bad circumstances. James chapter 1, God has given you some trials that without them you cannot know him. Various diverse struggles and temptations and trials. And Paul said, God, take this away. God said, no. He went back a second time, take this away. No. Third time, take this away. He said, no. Why? Because God in his sovereignty said, Paul, you're better with this trial than you would be without it. Well, God, what am I supposed to do? Get to the faucet. My grace is sufficient. What does that mean? You'll have everything you need when you need it. Does your job stink? Run to the faucet before you clock in. You got a terrible boss right now? Run to the faucet before you clock in. Are your customers irritating you? Run to the faucet before you go. Are you hearing me? Is your classroom stressful right now? Get to the faucet. Do those you oversee and supervise continually disappoint you? You better get to the faucet. Is your marriage really, really hard and you can't figure out why it's not working? Get to the faucet. Sovereignly has God ordained that your health be failing right now? Get to the faucet. Are your kids sick and you can't figure out why and the doctors have no answer? Get to the faucet. Has something been taken away from you and you still struggle with that? Get to the faucet. Has somebody said something about somebody you love and it really hurts you? Get to the faucet. 
If you don't get to the faucet, you don't get to God's strength, get to God's grace on the daily. Then guess what you're going to do? You're you're just going to starve. You're going to just shrivel away. What humans do when they don't drink water. You can only supplement other things for so long. Water is what God created to keep you alive. You can put a patch here and a patch there. You can smoke this, drink this, eat this, spin this, go there. All of that will run dry. Paul says, I've learned to be content in whatever state I am. How? Because I ran to Christ. And when I ran to Christ when I was in jail, he strengthened me. I ran to Christ when I was in the stocks and he strengthened me. I ran to Christ as I got stoned and he strengthened me. I ran to Christ as I got ran out of Thessalonica and he strengthened me. I ran to Christ when I was shipwrecked and scared for my life and everybody else was scared too and he strengthened me. Why? He will never leave you or forsake you. You can be content with what you have and where you're at because wherever you're at, God is there. He's there with you. Speaking to TJ, we've never felt God's presence more than in that moment. Without that moment, we'd have never known God like we do. And if we could rewrite the story, we would take out that moment. I'd be lying to you if I said, you know, I, I think I'd keep that in there because it made me a better Christian. No, I wish God would have found a different way to make me a better Christian. But in God's sovereignty, he put that in our story. And we can look back either bitter and begrudgingly, or we can look back and say, you know what? I'm going to just trust God with this. He's the author and the finisher of my faith. He has the pen. And he has the eraser too. And whatever he wants to put in my story, that's fine. I'm going to rest in him. God never promised once. Follow my son Jesus and life gets simple. Follow my son Jesus, you have the job you want, you'll get to live wherever you want to live. You'll have the students that are always nice to you, you'll have parents that always cooperate. You'll have just the right amount of zeros on your paycheck. And your president will always be in office. He never says that, you know what he says? I'll talk about this Sunday morning. He says, you better die to yourself and pick up your cross and follow me. Why did he pick a cross? He could have picked a dove, it represents peace. Could have picked a rainbow, at least back then it it represented the promises of God. Why did he pick a symbol, a bloody symbol, two beams, that the Romans used to humiliate criminals in front of the community? Why did he pick that? Because that's what it looks like to follow Christ. It looks like dying to ourselves every single day. And the reason why Christians whine and whine and whine and whine and whine is because they want to pick up their dove and follow Jesus. They want to pick up their rainbow and follow Jesus. They want to pick up their WWJD bracelet and follow Jesus. They want to pick up their fish bumper sticker and follow Jesus. Well, hear me, pick up a cross. That's following Jesus. Die to yourself. I don't like it. I wish I could be a prosperity gospel preacher. It'd make me a lot more money. I'd be on TBN tonight. I'd have, a, I'd have a charter jet. That's just not what the Bible teaches. 
And so I've got I've, I've to remind you, if life is hard, it could be because God is up to something in your life. So get to the faucet and he'll get you through another day. I promise he'll get you through another day. You'll have all you need when you need it. I don't even know how I'm supposed to end the message. None of that was in the script. That's what happens when something gets on me. And that doesn't happen very often, but I'll take it. We got to go. Just learn to be content in Christ. That's the cure. He is a satisfying Savior.